1: Deck maintenance isn't fun. Move the furniture and barbecue, sand and prep, paint, seal, or get a low maintenance Trex deck. The only color fade you'll have to deal with is watching the sunset. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. From the grassroots to the elite, from the juniors to the pros, covering the Aussies trekking the glows to the champions internationally. Welcome to the first serve, your home of tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, your open space specialists. GLG, celebrating 25 years of industry expertise and exceptional service. Find out more at glgcorp.com.
2: Evening, everybody. Welcome along to the first serve. It is your home of tennis. Uh, great to be back for uh, another week. Hold up here at uh, home. Got the little heater on. A little fresh in uh Our broadcast uh, room here we've been doing this a long time we're getting used to it aren't we stage four wherever you're listening around the country just feel sorry for us Melbournians but hey we're tough we're resilient no doubt about that Brett Phillips uh, flying solo tonight Sam Groth can't be with us a Wimbledon champion to join us on the show tonight our resident physio Rob Brandon will be with us so younger tennis players out there stay tuned for that the latest from the US with cincinnati on i was up very early watching uh, john millman play big john esner the Fremantle dockers number one ticket holder earlier today and you're always welcome to set the tennis agenda 1300 736 736 or on the text 0433 98 1116 i want to start tonight by revisiting last week on the show i invited a gentleman by the name of bill mcdonald to come on the show a long time tennis coach across australia And he came on to elaborate on his comments that he had to say on the Australian Tennis Community Facebook group, set up a number of years ago now to create a platform where tennis folk across the country could have a forum to raise their concerns about the sport. It's also a place, as described to me in the last seven days, where tennis voices from all walks across Australia can come together and share and learn. It has, as we go to air tonight, 3,914 members. Now, this was me last week mentioning the comments that I read from Bill that got my interest followed by part of what he had to say when we invited him on. This was on last week's show. This has been a deliberate scheme over the last 30 to 40 years by Tennis Australia admin to starve grassroots tennis to submission and turn tennis into a business under their control. Lack of prize money and politically manipulated elite training programs, control of member states by paying TA-controlled staff to manage tennis. The profits of the AO were meant to be distributed by our constitution to its states and regions. However, these profits have been manipulated to gain control of tennis through paying staff and therefore not spent on the game of tennis itself. This process has seen most of our post juniors leave our game in droves. These juniors very rarely involve their children in tennis, thus every year for the past 40 years our game has deteriorated. The staff are supposed to work for our state and national boards but the tail wags the dog. Thus, we have an administration of more than 700 full-time employees controlling a game meant to be a sport, not a business. Tennis is suffering a Chinese water torture, and we need to run our own tennis and band together for the sake of of our future players and our sport. I
3: know all the people, all the officials, all the players, all the people who every year leave tennis for about 16 years. They've all been in a very expensive game with coaching, tournament fees, restrings, travel, accommodation, meals, etc. This is the realm of grassroots tennis, the tennis tournaments. TA staff are very rarely at any of these events, but they run all these events. I'm here speaking for all the people, there would be very many people listening to this show tonight, okay?
2: So that is Bill MacDonald commenting on the back of his own comments that he put on social media that I just read out. So that was Bill MacDonald last week. Now, since that interview, I've had a lot of feedback from many people across the last seven days who are tuning into us live or who listen back to the podcast version of our show. I've shared many a phone call, text message and email exchange from tennis folk right across Australia, involved at grassroots level. This is the space that they are the most invested in and the most passionate about. Let's separate the Australian Open and grassroots tennis. Although tied in from the allocation of profits angle, all people I speak to certainly acknowledge that Tennis Australia do a mighty fine job running the Australian Open, and I agree with that. As I said last week, our show will always be for everyone in tennis. We're here to cover the game from the grassroots to the elite and talk to all stakeholders. There's no doubt with the holding play at professional level this year, it has allowed us to spend more time dissecting the domestic grassroots scene here in this country. That's not to say we haven't been interested as a show, but the lean and the focus has probably been 70-30 covering the professional scene versus the grassroots scene. As I said last week, the reason I read the Australian Tennis Community Facebook group is because I'm interested to know what people are thinking who love the great sport of tennis. My understanding is that there are Tennis Australia personnel who are also members of that group. So for a while now, I've known about people's beefs with TA because I've met many, many people in tennis doing this show and also via being employed by TA around the summer of tennis for a number of years now. Naturally, there's always going to be differences of opinions and philosophies from the inside to the outside of any sport. As I said last week, big sporting organisations are always going to have their detractors and critics as to how they are governing and managing their sport. Now, I'm not an investigative journalist and I don't really have an appetite for the politics and the byplay. but I'll tell you what I do like, and that is solutions. I love the game. It's taken me around the world I've loved telling the many great stories in tennis and have always had the aim to talk the game up. And in SEN's case, showcase tennis on a commercial radio station weekly. But extending from our chat to Bill MacDonald last week, as I mentioned, many views have been put forward to me. There are those in life who can just be negative by nature with a glass-empty approach, and then there are those who want to fight the good fight because they are firm of the belief that there is a fundamental problem that needs to be fixed... For something to prosper better then there is a massive people who share the same view and are so invested and feeling marginalized how can they just sit back and not say anything it is a passion for their sport now on this show you are welcome to call anytime 1300 736 736 or you can text us at any time 0433 98 11 16 or if you want to send me some longer form correspondence as a number of people have done in the last seven days, the first serve sen at gmail.com. You have a radio platform weekly to set the tennis agenda. Now whilst I said I've been across the views from the outside, I'll freely admit I wasn't across the depth of it or how far it stretched across the states and territories and I've always debated what should be the focus of our show. I want our show to tell the good stories. And there are plenty of them in tennis from the grassroots to the elite. But we also need to have the real conversations, not us trying to be the saviour of people's disgruntlement, but to be an open dialogue to all so that everyone is heard that may enact solutions. One thing everyone in tennis agrees on, it's a great game professionally and recreationally, but a large chorus think it could be so much better than what it is at the extremely important grassroots level in particular. People have a democratic right to speak, so I believe we can actually have a constructive discussion on our show. So any correspondence we get, I will certainly read out. In saying that, what has pricked my interest in the last week is the common theme of people who I've spoken to who don't want to be revealed in fear of being ostracised by Tennis Australia for speaking out against them or have been ostracised. And I say, what? You're kidding? People outside the governing body can't have a say and a voice in the game they love. Now on the surface, that doesn't sit comfortably with me. So you heard Bill last week. In summary, his opinion is that Tennis Australia has made themselves into a company with a great deal of money spent on staff and bewildered how they treat tennis and all its people. Much of the tennis policies are formulated by staff who know nothing about tennis. Control of member states by paying TA-controlled staff to manage tennis. Profits have been manipulated to gain control of tennis through paying staff and not spent on the game of tennis. Player carnage shattered dreams, a very expensive experience. They quit with a sour taste in their mouths. Bill also suggested a $30 million a year tournament and competition circuit is needed. So surely the best way to run a sport is to spend its profits mainly on players to give prize money to enhance their tennis. Now, for those... Not intimately aware in Australia, we have the pathway of the semi professional Australian money tournaments in the following categories. So there's platinum, which is half funded by Tennis Australia and the participating states, and there are around 21 of those in that 10,000 to 15,000 scale. There are the gold AMTs, part contributed by TA and the states, of $2,000 each. Overall, there is around $7,500 prize money for 27 tournaments across the country. Silver and bronze with a total prize money of 3000 and 2000 each. There are 54 silver tournaments and 76 bronze, and these are totally funded by the provider, which is the club or the venue which is hosting those events. They lead into the Australian Pro Tour, then leading into international tennis. Now, as one person told me in the last week, Giving big money away at the AMT and domestic pro tour level is inappropriate. The aim is to make people aspire. Now, there's certainly an argument for that, no doubt. But as Grothy and I have discussed on this show for the past five, six months since we went into COVID, from what we observe, there has to be a greater pathway for aspiring players. So aside from Bill, this is the other feedback directly to me on the back of our show last week. This is the power of radio. And you certainly find out where your audience is are listening and the one thing for us that have worked in radio a long time we just never quite know where everyone is listening to us it's fascinating now i'm not on the inside as i've said this is not my personal attack on tennis australia and i'm not aware of everything that's gone on but this is the feedback that i have got from people who are at the coalface who love the sport and want to see it flourish tennis australia are control freaks huge bureaucracy of inexperienced people killing us not helping When the Chair of Tennis Australia sends her kids to Spain, we have a huge problem. The sport is dying and the staff are so out of touch with reality. Private coaches haven't been able to get into schools, all centralised through TA running their Hot Shots program via the teachers being upskilled. TA now wants qualified coaches to pay $99 for the right to be a recognised sporting schools coach. That's $99 each for primary and secondary. The joke doing the rounds of one state body staff is that they can't even provide a doubles game of four players because no-one has played tennis. I've been involved with tennis as a coach and administrator for over 40 years and have never seen grassroots tennis in a worse situation. Other codes are so advanced on domestic competition. Need to adopt the golf tour approach where more people have an opportunity to stay on the tour. Been screaming about UTR, which is Universal Tennis Ratings, for what seems years now. The Australian rankings are flawed by nature and terrible in actually fostering talent. It was outstanding to hear some of the truth. What I have seen and experienced in 28 years in the industry makes me shake my head every week. It sounds outrageous. It's mafia-like how our sport is run. Clubs are successful in spite of Tennis Australia, not because of them. Don't want my email shared because tennis will sabotage me and try and destroy us. So much money has been spent on unnecessary stuff. TA should be a service provider to ensure clubs are going great. How about the stat of how many Australian 16 and under Davis Cup players weren't even playing tennis at the age of 20? A lot of the initiatives over the years to get people interested in tennis deemed as failures. Get your racket on, open court sessions, the latest initiative this year, deemed by everyone I spoke to who contacted me to be a flop. Builders are a new and a great way to get out and get more people playing tennis, have a laugh, play tennis, designed to bring people back to the sport. The people at the coalface of the sport tell me they are bewildered of where the focus is and what the money is being spent on. only care about the Australian Open and nothing else. No transparency of where the finances go. There is a firm view by four people who contacted me. That the Australian Open and the Tennis Australia should be separated. That the TA board, which is top heavy with corporates, runs the Australian Open and the business arm, and that a separate board, if you like, or a separate group, runs the community tennis side to include knowledgeable tennis people with a real passion for the game who would set the grassroots direction. Strongly suggested to me that a governance restructure is needed. Now, I just wanted to read that out tonight. That's. That's the temperature out there. That could be just talkback callers calling into the show. We're a talkback radio station. Everyone is entitled to their opinion. And that's what I want people to, uh, to actually do every week, is to set the agenda. We'll have guests on, we will talk to many people across uh, lots of stakeholders in tennis, but this is your show where you've got a platform that is pretty powerful. Radio is certainly a powerful medium and there are people listening. They might not agree, but they're listening. Now, the whole purpose of me coming on air to say this tonight is to create a conversation. I will certainly get in touch with Tennis Australia. I've got a good enough relationship there, and we'll talk about it and answer your questions. So there's transparency. That's one thing I can absolutely guarantee you that I will attempt to do. Now, whether Tennis Australia want to come forward and have that just that conversation about the sport that we all love, we'll find out. But that's what I wanted to go with off the top of the show tonight. I love your passion. It's really come through to me in some phone calls, some texts, and some people who have put some real genuine thought into some long-form emails in the last week. Not people just whinging for the sake of whinging, people who genuinely care about the game. one three hundred seven three six seven three six, 736 736 or you can text me anytime. time, 0433- 33 98, 11, 16 I'll come back with a few of your responses and after the break, we're also going to have a chat to a Wimbledon champion. Not everyone can say they're a Wimbledon champion. We're here thanks to Top Agents Real Estate servicing all of Melbourne. If you live here or looking to move to Melbourne, looking to buy, rent, sell, or have their property investment managed, make contact with David and his team, nine double five eight four five double nine or top-agents.com dot au. You're listening to the first serve. The first serve
1: your home of tennis, thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, celebrating 25 years providing landscape, horticultural and environmental services throughout Australia. GLG, your open space specialists. GLGcorp.com.
2: Welcome back to The First Serve. Brett Phillips with you uh, tonight. 1300 736 736, always our number to call, or you can shoot us through a text, 0433 98 1116... One on the text. Last week it was said that 100,000 free records were given out to schools. That means nothing unless those kids arrive at the tennis club to learn, join and compete. Why not use those records via coaches when kids go to the club? TA just gave them out and claimed that's participation. register numbers. They are just giveaways, not a pathway. Well, that is a theme that certainly has been said to me by quite a few people in the last uh, week. And there are uh, many topics to certainly canvas and discuss and you know people that people are passionate about certainly the coaches out there and I was contacted by a number of coaches certainly feel like they are getting the hard end of the stick so there's, uh, there's a lot bobbling around. Just away from the topics that we've sort of covered off the top, Brett, if there's still problems with crowds in Melbourne next January, does Tennis Australia have a contingency plan? Could they put 64 men in Sydney, 64 women in Brisbane, and use tennis hubs around Australia to maximise crowds in the first week? Have they thought about this all round of 16 matches onward to be played in Melbourne? It's fascinating, Bob. I mean, if we're listening to Craig Tiley a few weeks ago, absolutely adamant that the Australian Open would be in Melbourne. So the, their plan at the moment is is looking... They had five contingency plans on the table, but the one they were really focused on is 50% crowds. Now, who knows what's going to happen here in Melbourne with Stage 4, back to Stage 3, the time frame of all of that. I mean, the reality is to, to have a Grand Slam you have to have it at one place. And uh, there's no other tennis venue across Australia that is equipped to actually house a Grand Slam. that That is the issue. I mean, there's certainly been some suggestions around the traps. Now, TA did write back to me to say that that is pure speculation, but there has certainly been some talk that Tennis Australia may push the Australian Open back, maybe to around that April mark, uh, to coincide with the, what, first-term school holidays. But that would mean then adjusting the calendar from a world, a global scale point of view. So there's a bit to play out, but if we take Tennis Australia on their word, it's not going to be uh, heading anywhere but uh, Melbourne. Wimbledon champion, it sits uh, pretty nice on the resume, doesn't it, if you're a professional tennis player. Fifteen years ago, an Aussie by the name of Stephen Huss teamed up with a South African, Wesley Moody, to win the men's doubles at the championships. The pair, this is a great story, the pair entered qualifying, won their two matches, Wimbledon's the only... One of the slams that has doubles qualifying. And then they went on this unbelievable fairy tale run. They won six main draw matches. They knocked out the sixth, the ninth, the third, the first, and the second seeds to lift the Wimbledon trophy. Now, Huss was ranked 101 in the world in men's doubles at the time, coming into that Wimbledon campaign. He went through the US college pathway. Post tennis, he has turned to coaching with success whilst living in the US for quite a while now. I bring you my chat a little bit earlier today with Stephen Huss.
3: Currently, I'm actually in Atlanta. We came up here, the family, just recently. As you know, uh, I was let go by USTA with all this COVID stuff, along with a lot of other good people. So I'm currently just kind of looking around, trying to find my feet, seeing where my next piece of employment might be. I've got together with an old mate of mine, uh, Brad Sini, a Geelong boy, actually a Grand Slam doubles champion in the juniors a long time ago, doing a little bit of teaching at the club that he runs, where he's a director at here in Atlanta. Keep an eye on uh, on professional tennis and and the, the restart of tennis. This COVID's affected a lot of people. I'm just one of them.
2: Stephen has been focused on the players in the last uh, six months, uh, particularly those down the sort of the, the lower income scale and how they're going to survive and you know, having no tournaments to play. The ones who purely rely on prize money, the coaches certainly heard some interviews along the journey. I mean, people forget. Around the players, there are so many people who are stakeholders of tennis who are involved in the day-to-day tour life and the development that just give us your feel over there in the US of the coaches and how they've sort of been affected all through this.
3: Well, they certainly have been affected. I mean, you're right. The players' voice is a lot louder and it's a lot more public behind all the players are the coaches and their teams, whether it's the physio or the mental skills people. They're certainly left trying to grab whatever else is out there and try and earn a living. It's affected everyone and it's not only in sport in tennis it's it's all across the globe but it certainly had a big effect and I think a lot of coaches are, are out of work and, and have been out of work the same way that their players have been.
2: You've been over there in the US a little while so you've got to see how another country goes about managing and, and running tennis in a different way to what Tennis Australia and, and how Australian tennis is run. Can you sort of just for our listeners paint a bit of a picture over there in the US the way it's sort of structured?
3: Sure yeah I mean I was at the national campus in Orlando with the US today you know four and a half years about or, or since its inception when it opened I think at the more junior levels they've gone away from having full-time players sort of anyone under 16 really only comes in for camps or for certain amounts of time or short amounts of time whether they're weeks or two-week blocks and then they send them back out to the private sector and I think at the junior levels the younger kids and they've done a really good job with communicating with the private coach collaborating with them sending information to them showing them video and then having that sort of collaboration back And forth. The USTA does a very good job of that with the younger ones, and then as they get older and they get more into the transition space, sort of 16, 17, then they start to spend more time at the national centre. Eventually, a lot of them do come full time, but they build the base. You know, the base is wider and larger, and there's more players involved, and then, you know, the pyramid sort of goes up. And as the kids get older and the competition gets harder and it becomes more international, then, you know, obviously some players drop away and aren't quite good enough, and then it becomes comes a little less and so there are less players that are older at the national training centres. Some choose to train at the USTA full-time and others stay in their situations if they're in a good situation.
2: I mean clearly we've seen in tennis there are you know many ways to develop players and to develop those who are going to go on and become uh, potential champions when I mean, Tennis Australia's had their own performance review going on this year. I mean you're still connected to Australian tennis and would observe from afar and, and certainly speak to people. What do you make of what is happening in Australia compared to the US and, and I suppose the pros and cons for both and the way both countries go about that sort of pathway system, if you
3: like? I wouldn't say I'm extremely well versed in the way that sort of, the Australian Federation does it, but I certainly still know some people and I, I see the coaches on the road at the international tournaments. And I can say with with a lot of authority that the coaches on the road, I think, do a, a terrific job with the Australian players. I mean, you know, I see Brett Hunter and Nicole Chris and Chris Marnie, people like that on the road and at tournaments. And it's... Actually, pretty cool and quite proud. I, I feel quite proud that when I'm on the practice court early in the morning or at the end of the day, and I look over and there's a there's only two courts going, and the other courts an Australian coach working, and it's mm. it's it's really cool to see that work ethic out of the coaches. So I think that they're doing a great job from what I see at the at the tournaments with the day-to-day development and process of getting their athletes better. And from an overall perspective, I understand that they've you know just changed the system again a little bit with you know the national uh, base being in Brisbane and. And being 15 and over and then sort of giving more or just say power back to the private coaches and this private section to, to develop them I don't think that there's one way or a, a, a right way to do it for everybody I, I think every player's pathway is unique and just because you go this way doesn't mean or someone else goes this way means you have to go that way there are some that go to college and make the tour and there are others that are unbelievable at 15 like Leighton Hewitt was there's different ways to get to the top and so I don't think there is a an app absolute one way and right way to do it so I think you have to explore all avenues and I think that's where federations can't get it right all the time I've seen that from being outside of it as a player and looking in and now I've seen that from the inside looking out you can't get it right all the time and there isn't one way that's always going to work but you do your best you invest in the players and I think you you think about the athletes first and and I hope that you know all, all federations and whether it's in Australia or the US here that are doing that. So
2: just to follow on Stephen from that I mean Australia is always had its uh, challenges logistically in a global sport like tennis so we see obviously the players come through the pathway here to a certain level and then we'll see players go and disperse overseas to you know further their tennis to obviously further the competition and so forth I mean I, I talked to a lot of people across you know so many different stakeholders in tennis so many different areas from the grassroots all the way up through the pathway. And there's a lot of people saying that we need to have a stronger domestic competition here in Australia so that players can stay home and hone their craft without all the expense of having to travel to further themselves, whether it's you know, trying to go on the pro tour at a young age or looking at the college pathway. Can you give us your perspective where you would lean there? I mean, Tennis Australia obviously can only fund tennis to a certain extent. There's people who'd love them to fund it more at the lower rungs here. But then there's the argument in such a global sport, you do need to sort of get away from Australia and go and test yourself and and maybe develop in other parts of the world. I think it's just a, a sort of a fascinating discussion because... This whole COVID has maybe said to the tennis administrators, maybe we need to have some more regional setups, maybe more sort of continent based tennis tournaments or leagues. It's given tenants I think a lot to think about.
3: Oh it certainly has. I am a firm believer that at one point or another it's great to go internationally and to see who else and what else is out there. I think it's fantastic to set up more opportunities, club-based tournaments in Australia and have more of that but if the level isn't there that they're going to expose to when they go overseas and in the international community then it perhaps isn't as useful as some people think. Throughout my time of watching, looking at tennis I'm seeing sort of the best Australian juniors even from when I was a junior I mean it's very hard to go from being a successful junior to a successful pro it's a huge leap it's a huge jump and I think that just because you're successful in Australia or one of the best in Australia it certainly doesn't mean that you're going to be one of the best internationally and so I think to be exposed to that international competition and actually go and see this is the level you know maybe it's at the under 14 level and you go twice a year and then at the under 16 level it's maybe three or four trips a year. Year. I am positive, I'm confident that the Australian kids can rise in their level and come up to that higher level if they're exposed to it. But if they sit at home and they're top five in Australia and you know everyone's telling them how good they are and how good they're going to be as a pro and they haven't seen what else is out there or been exposed to it, then I worry about that in that scenario because there is so much more depth and, and, a, and a really good level of competition internationally. That's kind of uh, where I sit on it.
2: UTR, we've seen the, uh, the series here in Australia to give Players a chance to return back and play Mm -hmm. some tennis across all the different states over the last uh, few months, and we had Mark Lishley on uh, heads up UTR, going back uh, I think a couple of months on our show. And yeah, here we've had the Australian sort of ranking system for a long time. Now, a lot of people have said to me privately, it's a waste of time. It doesn't actually mean anything. We should have UTR here in Australia. And they think that Tennis Australia has been a little bit behind in that regard. But UTR, when you look at it, it, it certainly makes a lot of sense. And this is growing, isn't it? Because it really gives probably a true indication of
3: the level you're at compared to other players around the world? It's grown unbelievably. I mean, UTR is becoming a fixture now, certainly in this country, in the US, and, and it's spreading more and more around the world. I don't like to talk about rankings too much because I think that's often a hindrance to some kids and, and even some professionals that are just so worried about what their UTR is or what their ranking is. I prefer people to, to focus on getting better and improving, but that's certainly a way to compare yourself to the rest of the world if, and I, I don't really know the situation with UTR are in Australia, how widely it's used or how accurate is in Australia. But I know in this country and certainly it's spreading more and more to Europe and other countries in Europe that it is it is pretty accurate. So perhaps that's something that they can use as a tool to know. But even if you're comparing yourself, you're not on a court hitting and feeling that ball coming at you and understanding like, oh okay I'm three in Australia and I'm really really good but wow I just played the sixth ranked guy from Italy and you know he's unbelievably good or whatever country it may be. So I, I you know and again I hope I'm not saying it's not possible for the best Australian player to be the best in the world. It certainly is possible. But I think you just need to expose yourself to that international competition, to know what else is out there, to prepare yourself for that transition from juniors to pros.
2: Just your development as a coach, You're going down that Coaching pathway and and the philosophies that you've developed from you know being a player and the success you had on tour. Just tell us about your sort of evolution as as a coach.
3: When I finished playing on tour, I thought, okay, I'd like to go and get away from tennis and do something different. Pretty quickly got an opportunity to work with a high level women's doubles team and I did that. Really enjoyed it. My strengths as a player were sort of a bit cerebral. I didn't have the biggest game, but I used my brain. I understood tennis. I could see habits and tactics and in in other people and I use that to my advantage to you know to have some success. My coaching pathway was working with those pros initially in women's doubles and then I went to college and and worked with a men's team at Virginia Tech. And really the experiences I got there working with eight or ten players at the same time was really helpful. All of a sudden this opportunity with the the USTA sort of contacted me and said, are you interested in working for us? And that came about. I think really where my growth as a coach has really occurred because of the Federation has so many resources to call upon I'm a learner, love learning, love experimenting. And so I've used a lot of those resources to upskill myself. had a fantastic mentor in Jose Higueras, who, you know, is a Spanish guy, but basically has written the philosophy in in, in the USTA and that the USTA follows. And I've spent a lot of time with him both on court and off court and on the phone and still tap into his uh, his know-how. I would imagine it's sort of like having the ear of Tony Roach in Australia or something like that, like, you know, someone who's that good in the game so that's been fantastic I've certainly used uh, utilized technology recently as well I, I'm pretty proficient in dartfish and play site and video cutting and editing and, and you know sort of the drawing tools and things like that to show that and then uh, Mark Kovacs is also a friend of mine and I tap into his resources and his website uh, and then the latest thing I've done is I've just uh, I've just started studying um, I'm doing a Masters in Sport Coaching actually from the University of Queensland up there and that's a very reputable program so I'm enjoying that I'm just Three weeks into that, but that's going to be probably an 18 months project. So that's sort of been my development as a coach. And I think obviously the fact that I um, had played at a pretty good level and and also experienced the big tournaments can help me from the mental side a little bit as well. And knowing a little bit more what it's like to be there and feel that from the mental side, I've done some work with Anthony Ross, Dr. Anthony Ross, who's up in Brisbane and his mentally tough tennis stuff. And that's helped me tremendously as a coach. And I think that's become a strength. And I think that's still an area of tennis that is underutilized and undertapped. yeah it's been fun and that, that I'm, I'm trying to get better
2: is it on your professional agenda that you would like to come back to be involved in the Australian tennis soon and have you had any discussions along the journey with anyone about that
3: I'm friendly with the people in the Australian system I mean I you know I love running into Nicole Pratt and talking tennis with her when we're away and she's you know she was the head of women's tennis I'm not quite sure what she's doing now I had a conversation with Wally Masoor recently about you know perhaps doing something on the road with some of the Australian players it hasn't worked out this time but it, it may in the future I mean I, I love Australia I love the, the lifestyle I've been gone for quite a long time but I, I still I miss it and, I, and hopefully at some stage I could get back and live in Australia again but it's not just about me anymore i got two young kids wife she works full-time my kids are nine and seven so yeah there's a bit to get through and, and consider but certainly I, uh, you know, I'm, I still consider myself a really strong Aussie, and um, it'd be fun to help Australian tennis and Australian players at some point. We'll watch this space.
2: And just to finish off, you've done a bit of work with Jennifer Brady. So she broke through recently to win her first WTA title, and she's been developing. We've seen her ranking incrementally go up, and. You know, she's sort of been around that fourth round of a couple of the slams and, and Sophia Kennan, who won the Australian Open earlier this year. You've also had a little bit to do with her. I mean, just talk about those two girls and, and their development.
3: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I had Sophia Kennan. I, I would say I supported her dad as a coach because her dad's sort of the number one coach there, but she was, she utilised the federation. And so I helped her for about nine months when she was 17. So yeah, that was sort of as she was coming up. And yeah, I mean, she's a, it's funny. Someone said, oh, well, she's not really an intimidating figure she doesn't have a huge game but I actually think she is intimidating because of her sort of her competitiveness and her feistiness she's an awesome competitor and she has and she reads the game incredibly well her her eyes are incredible she's ahead of the play uh, and that's so important to be successful at the top level and then Jenny Brady uh, I had for a year Jenny was great to work with very receptive very hard worker you know I thought that uh, we had a great working relationship you know I, I felt like I reached her from a professionalism standpoint, I think uh, I was able to show her that she could do more and that she was capable of doing more and, I, and believe in her to do more. And she really raised her standards and, and her levels and she's on her way up and I think she's around 40 now and I think yeah. she's going to I think she's gonna go higher as well. Yeah, it was, it was so great to see her win last week and we exchanged a couple of texts and yeah, she's got it all ahead of her. Uh, and then just the third one I've worked with a lot, the most actually is Caroline Dollarhide who's just yeah. sitting outside 100 in singles and she's about 30 in double. Another player that I've had a terrific relationship with And helped her from an unranked sort of junior Up until about 130 in the world Yeah, it's been fun to see those girls progression
2: Just for the coaches out there, just to finish I mean, that word competitiveness I mean, yeah, you can see it When Kenan came on the scene I mean, uh, she walks out there on a mission and, uh, and I love that. And, and it's fascinating to observe the Australians versus all the nationalities in this game. And just about every country plays this game around the world. And just their, their demeanour and every nationality is different in terms of temperament and demeanour and the way they go about it. But if you could put a percentage on competitiveness and that willpower versus talent and
3: technique, how do you sort of measure all that together? How you actually can become a, you know, a top-line professional player? Well, it's a really tough question when you ask me to put a number on it because obviously you have to have a certain amount of skill and talent to get to a certain point but without the competitiveness you certainly won't go anywhere near to reaching your potential so the competitiveness the grit is a huge part of being a successful pro we had John McEnroe come in one time to USTA and talk to the guys and he, and he had two main points but I'll just share one of them with you and the one was he said these guys Nadal Federer and Djokovic that have dominated tennis for so long and he was talking to all the players in the room and he said one thing they do that you guys still not everyone in this room is doing is that they try as hard as they can for every single point he said so if they have that much talent and they're that good and they've already you know won this many trophies how do you expect to step on court with them if you're not matching their competitiveness and their effort how do you expect to ever beat them and I thought it was a really simple but clear point and I think that probably answers your question as, as well as anything
2: yeah he's a good man Stephen Huss a Wimbledon champion 2005 making a very good fist of things as a coach he's a great person for us to tap into on the first serve. Speaking of coaching, Yarra Tennis Coaching, Melbourne's award-winning coaching program at Eaglemont since 2002. The courts are closed at the moment, but uh, Shane Scrutton and the team will be back before we know it. Uh, Discover more, whether you're a junior or whether you're an adult and you want to hit yarratennis.com.au. You're listening to The First Serve, your home of tennis.
1: The First Serve, your home of tennis. Thanks to GLG Greenlife Group, celebrating 25 years providing landscapes, horticultural and environmental services throughout Australia. GLG, your open space specialists. GLGcorp.com.
2: Welcome back to The First Serve, your home of tennis. Make sure you check out our website to thefirstserve.com.au. All our podcasts uh, going up this week, Aussies Only, crunching the numbers uh, in the huddle, thanks to Study and Play USA. And if you miss us live uh, any week, you can catch up on the podcast version of our show through your preferred podcast platform, thefirstserve.com.au. I'll come back to a couple of your texts at the tail end of the show. But let's check in with our resident physio, Rob Brandon from Revolve Physio Group. They're at 492 St Kilda Road in the city. And they do remain open uh, during the stage four restrictions here in Melbourne. uh, Trusted by Sports Elite, over 25 years of clinical experience, giving their clients every opportunity to get the best out of their body, no matter whether you're an avid gardener, uh, a weekend warrior, lunchtime walker and elite athlete. Check out evolvesports.physio. You'll be well looked after. Uh, Rob Brandon, welcome back, Rob. Hey, Brett. Good to be, uh
0: good to be back. The month rolls around pretty quickly, doesn't
2: it? Uh, it does, mate. I'm a little squeezed for time as well, so uh, I'm going to get you on back-to-back weeks. But, hey, lower back pain, I was reading uh, the article you wrote in the Tennis Australia magazine, lower back pain, but specifically sort of for the, the younger generation, and just talk me through sort of lumbar stress fractures because this is, this is quite common in the youth.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, it's probably the more common one that we see, particularly in the tennis players, uh, when they present. You know, probably more around that oh, 14, 15 sort of years old onwards, uh, maybe up to your sort of even eighteen, nineteen for the late maturers. But uh, yeah, it's pretty common in tennis and, and particularly other sports that involve um, extension. So when we're when they're leaning back, uh, that's lumbar extension in the lower back for yep. when you're winding up for your serve. Um so, uh, what that extension does is puts quite a bit of pressure on those little sections at the the lower part of the back, uh, and if it, it's something that we if we do quite repeatedly uh, and and often when we don't give it enough rest in between, then we can actually start to stress the the bone. Uh, so we essentially kind of bruise the bone um, and if we don't give that time to recover and we keep doing it, then you know sometimes progressively that can lead to an actual uh, stress fracture, which is is which is like a little uh, like a little um, microscopic crack in the yep. uh, in the bone itself.
2: Okay. So, what's the treatment,
0: Rob? Yeah, rest is the order of the day with these. So, uh, particularly for a, we need a good solid block of about kind of five to six weeks of of just avoiding those activities that are agitating it. So, particularly the extension. Um, and, and impact activity. So, you know, we need to really be avoiding the any sort of running around type activity as well. And, and often the trap is that you start to feel better maybe kind of two or three weeks into that yep. and then it's tempting to kind of get sucked back into going back on court uh, but you haven't actually given the bone time to uh, to really resolve from that, that bruising that it's had before. So it really needs a good solid six weeks and in that time, that's when you can be working on Getting stronger, working on your core muscles, um, you know, working with your coach on your technique to, to prevent all those things that have created the problem in the first place.
2: OK, there's a, a bit to work through there. Great article, Holding Back, if you want to archive that. Uh, rest, very valuable for players with lumbar stress injuries, uh, particularly for the youth out there. If you're coming through the tennis pathway, something to really make sure you focus on. Uh, just quickly, Rob, before I let you go, I've got to get a break in, but you're open through Stage 4, which is great. So anyone can come down and see you and the team at Evolve uh, Physio. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're still doing face-to-face
0: for, I guess, your more urgent um uh, injuries, but doing a lot of telehealth as well. So um, got both options available.
2: OK, you can book online to evolvesports.physio and uh, tell them the first serve sent you and Rob and Ivan and all the team will uh, certainly look after you. Thank you, mate. We'll keep an eye on that uh, lower back. In fact, I'm feeling a little bit sore at the moment. Uh, looking forward, maybe I need some food in my stomach. Thank you, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brett. See ya, Rob Brandom, uh, a break. We'll come back and wrap up the first serve.
1: The first serve your home of tennis thanks to glg green life group celebrating 25 years providing landscape horticultural and environmental services throughout australia glg your open space specialists glgcorp.com
2: Welcome back to the first serve. A little skimp for time right at the end. I've got a couple of texts to finish off, Brent, Love your passion. I know of two people who were sacked as the head of school programs replaced by a part-timer. What chance do we have with development in schools? Let's pick up that conversation on next week's show because it is a big talking point amongst the private coaches out there. If our junior player development system at an estimated $15 million per year was working, why do we have no junior players in the top 50 in the world? In the boys, Denmark, with a population of 5 million, has two boys top 50 and Switzerland has four boys, population 8.5 million. In the girls, Canada, population 36 million, has two in the top 50 and France has four girls in the top 50. At the elite level, the stats don't lie. At $15 million annually, what has gone wrong, especially as it snows for five months of the year in Switzerland and Denmark and together they only have half the population of Australia? It just doesn't add up. We'll pick up this conversation next week on The First Serve. Thanks to Starting From scratch and 100 Words, Listen to our podcast, thefirstserve.com.au. You can check out all our content right throughout the week. Thanks for your contribution tonight. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to
0: buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.